welcome to the CDC Podcast, Episode 12. I am your host, Eric Swain. What you are about to hear is an interview with indie developer Deidre K.I., originally recorded in March of 2011. It was slated to be a feature on another site, but after they decided they couldn't use it, I went looking around to find it a new home. Eventually it dawned on me that I ran a podcast, and Ben was gracious enough to allow it to run here, though it's still late due to further delays with audio issues in the second half, which have now mostly been dealt with. The subject of the interview is Deirdre's, at the time, newly released game, Life Flashes By. We discuss her work on the game, her influences, and the meaning there within. I apologize for any lack of quality as an interviewer. This was my first attempt. I hope you enjoy. Thank you, Deirdre, for, for taking this time to speak with me. Uh, in your own words, can you describe Life Flashes By to anyone who may not have heard of it? All right. Well, uh, my elevator pitch is basically it's an interactive story about a middle-aged writer going through a near-death experience. Uh, I actually want to know, where did you come up for the premise of that game? Was it based on something you'd seen, an amalgamation of ideas, or did it just spring to you out of thin air? It's definitely an amalgamation, as are most of my ideas, I'd say. And I don't know, like, things, I guess, yeah, a combination of both in a way, because um, I just kept having a bunch of ideas, like, just for whatever next game I wanted to work on after finishing a whole bunch of little projects, and I kind of wanted to do something bigger. I keep getting all these small ideas, and but then getting tired of them, and... At some point, they just kind of amalgamated into this. I just took a bunch of ideas I liked, and, and then Life Flashes By just came out. Well, let's go with this one. What were your influences for the game? Point-and-click adventures seems to be an obvious thing you can point to, but what else? Text interactive fiction, definitely, and uh, especially the ways in which much of the recent work of the last... 10 years or so has been very much focused on telling a story rather than having to solve a bunch of puzzles. And I guess like sort of the puzzleless interactive fiction movement of sorts that started with Photopia and then kind of went from there. And I guess I'm also influenced somewhat by like sort of the Japanese visual novels in a sense and how, how those are very focused on more on telling a story a lot of the time and I've played a lot of like the Phoenix Wright games on the DS and various other Japanese DS adventure games like Hotel Dusk and and those sorts of things. Actually that brings up another point because it doesn't seem to fit into the traditional definition or I maybe not definition but idea of a game. So I'm wondering either we have to expand the definition or do we call it something else other than game? Yeah. I know that there are definitely arguments for both. I mean, I know Tale of Tales and and other people are kind of like all with the all for the not games movement. But when I want to explain what I'm doing to people who aren't as familiar with the sort of uh, what with the writing about games that goes on over the internet, I call the stuff I make games because that's what people recognize and. People who don't usually play games have less of a problem with calling my stuff games than people who are heavily invested in, I guess, the gaming world for some weird reason. Is it based on these influences that you decided to keep nearly the whole game a dialogue-based affair? Because there's very little else to do. You can make 
some observations, very, very funny observations, I might add. <laughs> Thank you. But it, it seems to be all dialogue-based, and there's no challenge, no action, no puzzle or strategy. So is the entire dialogue-based affair more of a focusing effect? Yeah, I would say that, and I guess I've always found interactive dialogues a fun gameplay element in and of themselves. I'm not, I mean, like, maybe some people don't really call them gameplay because there's very little so-called challenge involved, but there is a lot of choice involved in a way, and kind of in the sense of just sort of shaping your character, shaping what you want your character to say and what you want to be left unsaid. And in its own right, I've always found that fascinating. Like, I keep saying that I'd enjoy BioWare's games a lot more if they took out all the boring combat parts. And so, yeah. (laughs) Oh, no, no. I've thought the same as well. Much like uh, if more games were based heavily on the Fallout option to resolve things through conversation how that would look, it does seem like your game seems a step in that direction of what it looks like. Yeah. Because as much as it's heavily based on that, it doesn't seem as interactive because you buck the trend of blank slate characters for Life Flashes By, and so there isn't much wiggle room in defining her. It's more of an act of revealing the character. Yeah, that's true in a sense. And I say it's revealing, and it's also role-play in a way. I think the sort of strength of not having a blank slate character, of having a more defined character, is that it puts you in their shoes and you see the limited possibility space of what Charlotte would do and say at a given time. And so in that sense, you just get an insight into who this person is and you have to play her within those constraints. You do have a choice within those constraints, but it's not as broad ranging of a choice as a big RPG-type title. And also, Charlotte isn't your cookie-cutter, popular culture female character, as she called herself. Where did your decision for her come from in this regard? Well, it's just life experience, lived experience. I'm not a stereotypical female character, and neither are most women I know. And as for, like, just specifically who Charlotte is, I was more or less inspired by, like, a lot of sort of the older smart career women I've known over the years and who I've kind of admired, but also felt a little intimidated by. And also there's a little bit of Emma Thompson's character in Stranger Than Fiction in her as well. (laughs) I didn't think of that. (laughs) Yes, but if you're uh, controlling Charlotte throughout the whole game, it seems like the other important thing is to mention your little flying companion. Where did Trevor, Charlotte's cosmic foil, come from? Trevin. Ah, yes. (laughs) Yes. I was originally going to call him Trevor, actually, but I I decided to call him Trevin instead, make him more fairy-like in a way. (laughs) So I like to call him a manic pixie dream guy, and that's kind of inspired by the trend of manic pixie dream girls in movies who, like, come and cheer up the sort of brooding male protagonists. And so I thought it would be kind of funny to to flip that around a bit, and, I don't know, he's got a sort of, like, a bit of sassy gay friend archetype, even though he's more asexual than gay, really. And, um, and just, uh, he's also kind of based on at least one of my dear male friends. I didn't see the flipping of the, uh, character stereotype there. Now that you mention it, it really is there. Mm -hmm. Yep, uh, back to the, uh, role-playing, there seemed to be 
some light role-playing elements in R-O-L-E role-playing, yeah. not R-O-L-L, yeah. where you can choose various... I wrote responses and scratched it out and put reactions to events that have happened yeah. in, her, in her life. And especially in the very opening one is very telling. The, the first choice where it says, like, where she goes, what I'm asking is, uh, and your choices are, who are you, where am I, and I have to get to this very important business meeting immediately. Yeah. <laughs> I've only gone through two of those choices. At, but it seems like, and even though that's what it says, it's more of the new Bioware choice where it gives you suggestion of where it's going to go, and it do- and then it sprawls out from there, from the character's own predefined nature. And it always has a twinge of her sass mm-hmm. in the in the responses. How did this come about, and do you see how I've described it as how it is? Hmm. All right, good question. Well, basically, that was kind of in there to just give a quick introduction of basically what you're going to be doing throughout the entire game, like just sort of. None of those three dialogue choices really have any, like, sort of effect on the gameplay and how it progresses, but it does kind of set things up for the player so that they they can choose one of these sort of, like, I guess all three sort of things are floating in Charlotte's mind, and they get to choose which one is the, I guess, is the, going to be the most pressing, the, the thing she voices. Yeah, and it was a... Sense. Yeah, but it's not just the the beginning. This happens several times yeah. throughout the game, sometimes in reaction to optional observations that don't continue, creates a whole new thread of dialogue choices. Yeah. But probably most important, not to spoil anything to people who haven't played it, but the very last dialogue interaction uh-huh. is that it comes again. And that one seems very player-driven rather than character-driven. Yeah. And so that in that sense, it's kind of like the summary of the player gets to speak in a way and say, okay, what action of Charlotte's would make most sense to you, given how you have played her so far and how you interpret her character as you have gone through this entire game and played her? Really? I saw that more of a, a subtle fourth wall breaking element by really directing the question at the player and what they've taken away from it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's also true. And would this run counter to Charlotte's belief of authorial control? Most likely, yes. I don't necessarily believe in Charlotte's beliefs regarding authorial control myself, so uh, I just thought having her as a character was just sort of an interesting subversion to that. She would never write a video game or an interactive story or anything like that. Maybe like one of her, her alternate selves would. And so it's kind of like, yeah, sort of me just playing with that, making a bit of a, adding my own voice there of sorts, and like, just, yeah. Any reason for her being a writer specifically? Hmm. It's a career choice that is similar enough to my own interests that it, I can, that I can relate in a sense, but, but different enough that it was an interesting exercise for me to write a different character. And also the fact that she's, older than I am, and I kind of wanted to sort of, this isn't true for everyone, but for a lot of people, like, you'll tend to get set in your ways, and that can often be to your detriment, and I just wanted to explore that kind of mindset, and uh, to see see kind of like the world changing around you, but you're not necessarily wanting it to change, because you kind of feel like you're becoming obsolete, and maybe even that you were born, like, too late for your time, in a sense. 
Well, the obvious follow-up, is her opinions on literature your own, or is it really just the characters' opinions? Hmm. Well, again, there are some that are my own and some that aren't. Because I found yeah. I found myself nodding with a lot of her, and then at a few points I was shaking my head vigorously. No, that's <laughs> not how it works. Yeah, I'm an English me too. major. That's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, me too. And I'm just like, yeah, like writing the character. I'm like, okay, what would she agree with me about? Ah, probably things like sexism. And what would she disagree with me about? And so genre, on. Genre fiction. Genre fiction, exactly. <laughs> I had to stand up and walk away from the computer at that point. Uh-huh. And I just think it's funny that she's got this sort of magic realism going going on <laughs> all around her, and it's driving her nuts. Like, she doesn't write, like, anything, like, fantastical. It absolutely despises it and thinks it frivolous, and yet it's happening in her head, and somehow she... she it's very it. nonchalant. Yeah. <laughs> very nonchalant. Yeah. <laughs> What would be your own inspirations or influences from literature or outside the game space? Like I said, the whole like magic realism element appeals to me, usually has. Even like sort of the surrealism in the art style is very kind of, yeah, influences the writing in a way. I've always, hmm, as for specific influences. Any titles or authors? Titles or authors. Uh, man, there's... Yeah. Take your time, I can edit out the blank space. Well, I've always, there's a, like, film influences, there's a lot of Richard Linklater, and, I uh, guess, Michael Gondry, Char- Charlie Kaufman, and stuff like that. And for literature-type stuff, been on kind of a, uh, a bit of a Margaret Atwood kick, and and there's always kind of the little, like, Judy Bloom influence in kind of the earlier scenes and influence from some comic book writers as well, like Ghost World and and just the kind of the t- sort of teen dramas being uh, portrayed in like the early work and just and it's very like yeah like all the sorts of dialogue heavy things you see and like in addition to the Linklater stuff in film I was talking about with Before Sunrise and Before Sunset. There's also this movie I I really love called uh, Conversations with Other Women that had a bit of a slight influence in sort of a more um, relationship-driven scenes with, like, Charlotte and her ex-husband. Yeah, lots of (laughs) Interesting you mentioned Margaret Atwood because, to my memory, I don't know her work specifically, but to me, she's in my mind, she's most remembered for the fact that she insists that she does not write fantasy or any genre work and that it's literature and that anything having to do with genre work is purely coincidental. Right. And it seemed very similar to the attitudes of Charlotte in the game. Yeah, there's definitely a little bit of that in there as well, yeah. When I was researching who other writers and and just kind of getting inspiration for who Charlotte is. Um, uh, yeah, Margaret Atwood's views and views of a lot of other kind of literary writers sort of figured into um, what Charlotte winds up being and what she winds up thinking of things. Another writer I uh, I just completely forgot to mention, but who's very influential is, of course, Douglas Copeland. It's just, he can be kind of hit or miss with people, but 
Yeah, the I guess the writing style, my personal writing style is very much kind of derived from that, the conversational tone he adopts and kind of the witty observations. And he's also based in Vancouver like me, so I can kind of relate to his specific regional flavors on some level, though I don't actually put much of that in Life Flashes By, although it's kind of, there's some subtle hints here and there. All right. Can you speak to the non-linear narrative presentation of the game? The first time I went through it, I did it chronologically from childhood on up, mm-hmm. but it was only after I'd finished the game did I realize that that wasn't entirely necessary. And yeah. on the second playthrough, I started from the middle and just worked my way outwards. Mm-hmm. And it seems more it affects your perception of it than anything that happens in the game, because you'll meet characters who are mentioned but you haven't met yet in one instance. And in another instance, you know fully formed who this person is before things change further down the line. And another interesting is that you don't have to do the alternate realities directly after you do her memories. Mm-hmm. And you could save them for later or do them out of order. And it seems to give a very different flavor with a lot of linear-based narratives seeming to be the trend nowadays and how even... I hesitate to put this in, but Roger Ebert saying that because you can control the narrative, it cannot be art, but you seem to have found a structure that bucks this thought process. Yeah. Well, um, this kind of came with some uh, experimenting with my past works that were, I guess, either more linear or that branched in the sense that if you take one branch, you're closed off to all the others. So for this project, I decided I wanted to do a story that was non-linear, but at the same time where you could see everything on one playthrough if you wanted to and find a compromise. And so I thought about how that would look like. And I guess what I wound up doing was representing time as if it were space in a way. Like if you go with your uh, classic point and click adventures in a Monkey Island game, you'll get a map and the map has a bunch of locations and you can visit those locations in any order. And then as you solve puzzles and what have you, you unlock new locations which you can also kind of go back and forth between as the game progresses. So for this game, I decided I'd do that with time, and I'm pretty happy with how that particular structure came about. Sorry, I just realized you couldn't see me nodding my head the whole time. Yeah. (laughs) feels quite a bit of uh, symbolism in the game, subtle in some cases, like the trees at the very beginning, which seem to pop up in the background every so often, all the time. And and also, it's the, one of the trees is the very menu system of how you go into the different memories. And then sometimes the symbolism is not so subtle, and this is my way of just being able to say, doom and gloom and horrible torment, <laughs> doom and gloom and horrible torment. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I've had that stuck in my head for days now. Yeah, everyone <laughs> loves that song. It's uh, It was kind of like just a bit of a thing. I decided I'd record on a whim and said, ah, that sounds good. I'll throw it in. And But yeah, I don't know. One day, uh, maybe if I get famous enough, I'll get an 80-piece choir together to sing that or something. <laughs> this is the internet. I'm pretty sure you can do that now. Oh, hmm. interesting. <laughs> Anybody who wants to audition for my 80-piece choir, feel free to contact me. <laughs> to, to be honest, I, I think it's mostly that track why I'm going to buy the premium version of the game. <laughs> I, I could just have that in the background while I'm working. Oh, yes. <laughs> Themes of life and death and choice are natural 
to arise in this in the premise that you've constructed. But you have also a heavy theme of authorial intent, and you make some very strong observations and comments on the nature of art and the output uh, as a culture. And they also seem to be more universal that apply to not just novels, as is Charlotte's domain, but there are more than a few stabs that I picked out, especially on the second playthrough, that criticize the present game industry and the methods and ways that it's going. Yeah. As you can imagine, there's a lot I'm not happy with. As with all sort of contemporary art of its day, it's important to like just sort of see where where art is going in the future, because I think art is just very important to culture in general, and that, especially nowadays, just, I guess, we as a society are as media in general is as influential to um, who we are and how we think as ever. That's kind of the big reason why why I work in a creative field and why I want to make games, because games are, I guess, They're the newest medium, and what I see is the most powerful medium. And it's just a shame that not enough people recognize this and kind of think that games are just this frivolous pastime. And it's not. It has so much potential to shape our culture, and in a huge sense, it is our culture to some degree. And I don't know, what what kind of a, a writer would I be if I didn't comment on culture itself and where it was going? Yeah, absolutely. It seems that in this work, you're allowed to explore much more depth than any AAA title, albeit outside maybe one or two, or and even most indie titles, just because, well, the way I see it, it's a very textual game, and I mean that in the English major sense, yeah. in that it has a, a flavor that you can actually feel in the text, and that it allows you to like dive into the cracks and go deeper into what's actually being said, not just the subtext, but like what that subtext means and what that meaning correlates to everything else. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just, it sounds more like a statement than a question, so I'm trying to figure out what to say in response. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure I had a question there because yeah. we reached the end of the paper, so. Right. But that's just how I saw it. Uh-huh. And more on the second meeting, in the first playthrough, it was very straightforward. It was like, this is very well written, this is very funny, this is entertaining. And then in preparation for the interview, it says, I better go play that again. So I remember everything. And then I was just, every time a line came out, I was just suddenly connecting it to what I had remembered before. And it was just, mm-hmm. I was thinking more into it. I was thinking deeper into what was actually being said, whether it was intentional or unintentional, mm-hmm. and to all these different aspects. And it's only a few hours long, but it seems like there's just so much more in there that the length trays. I guess that's very much a strength of nonlinearity and the interactive medium. It's that you wouldn't think this game has replayable value because you may have just, okay, I've seen all the content, what's next? And I guess like people like uh, rewatch movies and reread books a lot too, but I guess with a game, you can choose to experience it differently. With Life Flashes By, you can try say, choose the scenes out of order and say, oh yeah, this already happened last playthrough, but at the same time she's mentioning something and she already knows and now I'm interpreting it differently because of that. Yeah, it's all sorts of fascinating stuff. And I guess with your more sort of linear AAA games, you don't get that level of of exploration there. Is there anything specifically you did to the game or within the game 
to engender more critical thought because it, it's a game that very much is needs it to get more out of it. And is there any way you like taught the player or subtly hinted to the player that they have to play this more methodically and not just click quickly through all the content? Mm-hmm. If you click quickly through all the content, you will basically get. If you play the game as fast as possible, you can actually do it in maybe like five or ten minutes. And it's funny because in testing the game, I've actually done that. And it's like, yeah, it would make a great speed run if you had that sort of thing. But yeah, just the very fact that there are, I guess, no actual um, challenges, block points or anything in a sense, except you have to finish a certain area to get to the next. So, I mean, the player is kind of by default forced to be like, well, if there's none of this and this and this, what do I do now? Hmm, I guess I'll read this lovely dialogue and or listen to it, as the case may be. And, hmm, hey, that's actually kind of making me think. And, yeah, that's what I hope for. And I think that a lot of games that arbitrarily induce challenges that don't really have much bearing on the story itself, and I'm looking at a lot of the kind of later point-and-click adventures that kind of killed the genre, as they say, for this. And it's like, if you have too many arbitrary puzzle elements or challenge elements, and you treat your story and your dialogue and your story-based gameplay as this filler fluff, then the player is also going to treat it as fluff and not care about it either. But if you yourself, the author, take it seriously, then people will be forced to do the same, and they play. Uh, now, on, if I could quickly move on to how you created the game. You funded the game through Kickstarter, and a lot of the work, as I understand it, was done by volunteers. Can you explain this relatively new method of funding? It seems instead of one large patrons, like during the Renaissance, you now have dozens of much smaller patrons. Yeah. Well, the Kickstarter thing was very much first experiment for me, and I saw a lot of friends using it and like, oh, I've got this project in mind. Can I leverage this in some way? So I wasn't really looking to make money off this game per se, but I wanted to kind of do a step in that direction. So I picked a funding limit that was high enough to be somewhat substantial, but low enough that it seemed doable to me. And I chose $1,000, which isn't really a lot in the grand scheme of things. But it was out there just to see, like, how many people would pay for something that I had created given the body of my previous work and it's kind of a good way to test the waters in that sense. If I do another project I'd probably try something similar and now that I have more of an idea of how much things cost and how much development time is required for things and how many people I'd need to help me for certain other things. It's definitely like Kickstarter is no substitute for real funding or anything like that at this point but I see potential in it. It could be great for a lot of people. I know Andrew Plotkin recently had a lot of success with it, but he's been doing like free work for ages and ages, like way before I did. And, and Kill Screen. Yeah, yeah. Kill Screen did well too. And I mean, like, it's also great for smaller projects of a scope, like an event being held, like that party they were doing at GDC and various things like that. But how has this affected your methods of creation and development, if it has at all? Hmm. Well, for one thing, it got me to hire a couple of artists to help me out, and I think it really upped the quality of the atmospheric feel of the game, especially, like, background art. If you've seen my past work, 
what I do that passes for background art is seriously sparse. I'm I'm a lot more kind of very iconic kind of comic book character sort of feel to my art. So I brought uh, Marcella Roberts on and she does this great like surrealist painterly things and she's like as responsible for the style of the trees we mentioned earlier. And working with her was very great and inspiring because she would draw little things in the background art that I would later write about and have Charlotte comment on. Actually, speaking of the background art, as I was playing it again, I I did notice that in the alternate realities how it seemed like it was very colorful in the center, and as it goes out, it seems to fade and become much more of that distorted and unreal aspect. Yeah, it was, um, that was definitely very much intentional. Okay, it's all a surrealist style, but you know what? I kind of want the alternate reality styles to be more so. So I just, I just told Marcella to do what she could with that. And that's basically what she delivered. I'm like, oh, I like that a lot. And uh, I like how it goes black and white at the edges, or I like how it goes distorted at the edges or like fragments out. And I thought that was just a great visual representation of what I wanted to convey with the alternate realities themselves. Uh, what did you make the game with, Flash or a different programming system? Mm-hmm. Well, I used this this open source adventure game engine called Sludge. It's kind of named after Scum, and mm-hmm. which is uh, the LucasArts system. It's this engine that I actually uh, first came across in the early 2000s. Back then it was a shareware engine that was written by this guy named Tim Furnish, who later released a game called Out of Order, and which was kind of like made big waves on the freeware scene way back in like 2003 or thereabouts. And so I developed my first games, Cubert Badbone, and the game that takes place on the cruise ship with that engine. And after a while, I sought a bunch of other alternatives for development because the engine was kind of aging a bit. And so I used Wintermute for a while, and I did some Flash experimentation, and which also led to me using Flash at my current day job a lot. But then, like, later on, there was kind of a bit of a revival project, some of my friend Ricard Peterson was had an interest in like porting Sludge to the Mac, and I'd recently started primarily using Macs as my development environments as well, and I found myself wanting something I could use and not have to boot into Windows or anything like that. And so Tim Furnish made Sludge an open source project because he didn't have time to work on it anymore. So this kind of, uh, this volunteer community picked it up and I just updated it in a way, made it run a lot faster, had like OpenGL graphics like there for the, to uh, make the 2D environments a lot faster. And then I decided, like, hey, for life blasted by, I might as well help test out this new engine, that this new revival of the sludge engine. So started using that and kind of was a beta tester of sorts in that regard for Sludge 2.0. And, yeah, I just really enjoyed what I could still do with it. It was kind of cool to go back to using tools that I'd used when I was, like, 10 years ago or so, when I was a teenager. So there was a bit of nostalgia there, but at the same time, it's like, oh, I'm creating this completely new thing with it. And yeah, so happy with how that turned out. And since the project's open source, I kind of, I'm holding out hope that maybe it can get ported to more platforms. I kind of dabbled here and there with uh, talking to people about getting it into iOS, which would be really cool. And uh, Android. Android. Android too, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, and so, like, yeah, if any 
programmer folk are interested. Um, but yeah, the the sludge project is there. <laughs> uh, what were the other projects you worked on previously? Mm-hmm. And well, what are your plans for future development? Hmm. So I mentioned I've been doing my own point-and-click adventures since I was about since I was a teenager. Can all those be found through your site? Those can all be found through my site. There is a My Games section, and you can go there, and there's a list of all the games I have worked on there. And as for future projects, huh, there are, I don't really have any that I'm prepared enough to talk about yet, just because I'm kind of burned out on finishing off Life Flash Spy, because it was kind of a demanding project for me. And so I think whatever next project I undertake, it's going to take some time. And I'm kind of in a space where I'm thinking about where my life's going to go next and absorbing rather than producing at this point. Yeah, because this was actually the first game of yours I had ever really heard of and subsequently played. And I didn't even hear about it until it was completed. So I, I missed any of the process that you might have been talking to others about. I do have one criticism of the game, and that seems to be the audio. The audio, yeah. While the two main characters and some of the minor characters come in rather clear, some of the recording for other side characters, Edwin McKay comes directly to mind. Yeah. Is that it's just off. I'm wondering if that's just a recording method or an implementation problem. Well, that's kind of the consequence of having all my voice recordings being done by people all over the internet sending their voices in, and some will be higher quality than others. It would be nice if I could somehow get everybody in the same room together and have the recording quality be consistent, but this was sort of a sacrifice of sorts that I had to make in order to get it done and get the game done like as close to what I wanted as possible. No time for re-recording requests? Yeah. I just wanted to get it out there. It's kind of gotten late for re-recording in some instances, so I'd love to if I had time. But getting the game out there is more important to me. Now I remember. IMF, have you or will you be submitting this to the IMF or any of the other indie awards? Oh, you mean the IGF? IGF, thank you. IGF, yeah. I have submitted to Indicade. And um, as for the IGF, when the submissions open up, I probably will end up submitting it. Submitted my games to various festivals in the past and not gotten much of a response, but I'm especially proud of Life Flashes By, so I guess I'm confident enough that submitting it will be worthwhile this time around. (laughs) All right. Going back to the content of the game, for taking place in in a area between the living world and the afterlife, and several mentions of the powers that be, it seems that Life Flashes By is a very religion-neutral story. Was mm-hmm. that so people would focus on the characters more and not the metaphysics of the situation? Yeah, and very much so, and also that my personal metaphysical religious views are very pluralist and I didn't really want to exclude anyone or uh, proselytize a particular faith. And basically this is, I wanted to make it a human story just about, I mean, there's like magic realism and symbolism in it, but it's more just of an imaginative sense. And I guess a lot of like myths and traditions are in a sense, part of a shared conscious imagination. I of course am biased in the sense that, 
I'm writing about my own particular culture and the cultures I was raised around and in. So my views are necessarily limited, but it's, it's true. I did want to focus more on the humanity and not on a particularly existing faith tradition. Based on your earlier games, it seems that you do a lot of point-and-click or very visual novel-style games from your yeah. description. What do you feel on the mechanic is the meaning movement that seems to be pushing forward, or at least academic thought and critical thought on games? I think it's totally valid, and I love seeing games where mechanics conveys the game, like your message is conveyed not through text, as I do, but through movement or through whatever like game constraints they are. And I think that's great. I personally like working with text because it's my strength. And who is to say that interactive dialogue isn't a mechanic on its own? It, and basically just my ideas on game design movements in general is that all I want is just more diversity out there. I don't want all games to look the same, even if they're games that I happen to enjoy. I want a, more of a plethora of experiences there and a plethora of gameplay styles. Also, I like to say that the reason I prefer to work with a lot of text-based stuff is because, like I said, I see a lot of games focused on movement above all things, and and I've uh, kind of never been the type of person in my day-to-day -day life who's really made a lot of use of movement, uh, comparatively speaking. I've always been kind of awkward, and I was never any good in gym class, and so, and I just spent a lot of my childhood just sitting down and reading and playing on the computer and just in having my imagination interact in those ways. And so that it's a very much less the uh, a corporeal feeling and just more of like an, an abstract method, like language itself is an, it is an abstract representation of things going on. But yeah, I think it's still a totally valid game mechanic. Did you do all the writing yourself? Did you have an editor cut it down? I did all the writing myself. I'm a relatively terse writer in general, which makes Twitter not too difficult for me. And I've always felt that I've tried doing things like writing novels before, and I'm struggling. Uh, I'm just not writing enough words, and this isn't too uncomfortable for me, but kind of doing punchy, snappy dialogue, it comes a lot more naturally, so... As my big piece of advice as an indie developer is to play to your strengths, so I try to do that as much as possible. On a side note, there's a book I recommend. A Reader's Manifesto, an attack on the growing pretentiousness in American literary prose. <laughs> oh, I like that title already. I'm going to that up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about halfway through, and I wish I had it, this in my contemporary literature classes a few years ago. Yeah, I definitely have to pick that up. <laughs> Now, this is probably what's going to get me the most hate mail from the comment section. This is a very feminist game with quite a few parts that manage to insert commentary on the division between genders and their perception within cultures, and a lot of difficulty. Uh, I'm going to butcher this question. It's okay, I'll be nice. <laughs> Please pick it up anytime. Yeah, well, just generally, that just comes from lived experience again, and... I do my fair share of feminist activism online. I write a little bit for the Border House, great site, and retweet a lot of a lot of uh, links from feminist blogs and 
sometimes it'll lose me followers and sometimes uh, but then sometimes like it'll gain me even more and but really it's the whole thing feminism is basically the radical notion that women are people and i don't see enough women in games who are people and if Charlotte comes across as being too angry about it and being too and just complaining too much. Well, yeah, maybe that's fair, but as far as I'm concerned, it's valid anger to have and I don't feel that the observations she makes are off base and I thought it was just very important to get that viewpoint out there and to get a a feminist friendly character out there in a game. I mean, like she can't please everyone, but but it's different and compelling enough to me that I believe that viewpoint needs to be expressed. What I really liked about it is that you never shove it in the player's face. You manage to work it in organically. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure how someone not attribute to that thinking or process might find those parts in the game. Yeah. You know what? I'm not sure either. All I did was write what felt true to me and yeah people are going to disagree with that and I just hope that enough people will play the game and do vocally disagree with it at least it provokes some discussion and I think that's a good thing in any kind of media but on the content the ambiguous nature of the ending does she die or do you want to keep that ambiguous I think I'm going to keep that ambiguous because you know what I don't really know I don't know myself <laughs> I mean, like, I could I could uh, be all high and mighty and pretend I know, and but, oh, I'm keeping it a secret. I'm not telling anybody. I'm going to take it to my grand. Everyone's going to ask me about it for the rest of my career, but... A.K.A. the Jonathan Blow approach. <laughs> but the truth is, I don't know. That's like, I'm not omniscient. I'm just taking down the message in a way, and I don't believe I need to know what happens to Charlotte next, because that's just the way the story is. It's... The very nature is that it's unresolved and that open-endedness, that's just it. Like, you don't know the very nature of life. You don't know what's going to happen next. And I was inspired in part by some film endings that they leave ambiguous. And when I'd first come across things like that, I'd just, I'd feel like, oh, I'm being cheated out of a proper ending. But I think right now I'm at a phase in my life where, well, yeah, things are uncertain for me. and. I think an unresolved ending is the best way to convey that, really. You don't know what's going to happen. I know there's a place for it, but I feel the the debate, the text, into one way or the other. Actually, I'd like to do that with anyone in the critical community. It would feel like a very interesting discussion. Well, what do you think? (laughs) I want to play it one more time before I firmly make my stance, because it seems like on repeat viewings, especially when she's looking at the scene with her ex-husband. There's some subtle evidence in one direction, but I'd like to play the rest all over again so I can pull things out. Well, I am always interested in what people can delve up my subconsciousness. So by all means, speculate away. (laughs) And I have one smaller question. Fortune teller? (laughs) Of all the alternate futures, this was the one I could not wrap my head around. And Trevin was right alongside me with this one. Every single alternative future, the becoming a literary agent, the turning to programming, they all made sense except this one. (laughs) Um... Could you not figure out what not doing a film script would lead your life to, or was this as out there as possible? Basically, like, 
Charlotte's like her basic motivation for doing the film script or doing all these. There are so many other like kind of menial, only tangentially related to her true passion jobs that she could have chosen. And but if she rejects this one, she'd essentially be rejecting everything else. So and then from that line and reasoning, if she's going to be completely purist and reject all compromises offered to her, she's basically going to wind up on the street. And, like, the fortune-telling thing was just this completely, I don't know, it, it was just completely silly and funny. And I wanted to see, like, Charlotte as this completely, like, different frou-frou fortune-teller on the streets kind of person. And, and and I thought it was kind of funny because I'm only interested in, I guess, tarot reading in the sense that it's just basically a way for, like, people who maybe tangentially know you or who, like, kind of pick up on uh, cues about you when you show up and then they kind of make up a story about who you are and where your life is leaded based on that. I mean, like, obviously people who assign a more metaphysical aspect to the tarot might disagree with me on that. But, yeah, personally, it is basically storytelling, and I don't mean that in, like, a disparaging way. And I don't know, that just popped up in my head as something that would be interesting to explore. And, hey, it's my game. I'll write about whatever I want. And, and yeah, I just thought it was kind of silly and funny. And, yes, Charlotte and Trevin will break the fourth wall and be like, what the hell? (laughs) I especially like that you gave as a client a fortune teller's worst nightmare. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> no, I just, I just, I just sat down on a whim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I can't get my head around. Yeah. I assumed there was going to be an explanation in the dialogue how one thing led to another. But no. Yeah. Of course, if you want to draw your own conclusions from that, feel free. <laughs> <laughs> For the scenes in her life, you chose most for obvious reasons. They were life-changing choices. The decision to focus on English rather than maths. Yeah. Well, she's British. She says maths. I I had trouble with that myself, so... (laughs) I had to throw that little thing in there. I was wondering if you had that habit of saying maths or had to look it up. Yeah, I'm Canadian. We said maths. As British as we are, like, with spelling and, and things like that. We often name things more like Americans. But I did want to make the story authentic, so I went with the British way of saying it. And then, of course, you have following your future husband to a diner, staying together, not staying together. These are all very large choices, and very obviously so. Yeah. Even at the time, these would seem like life-altering decisions. I'm just wondering if you ever considered putting smaller, unknowable, unintentional choices that were made that could switch things. You sort of did with the last one. Again, it's just, I did think about it. It's basically a matter of scope. I am but a humble indie developer, and I only have so much time and so much resources to deal with. I don't want to have this become this huge vaporware project that takes years on end and that I never finish. And so by necessity, I had to kind of limit to just a few major decisions and I guess I could have played around a lot more like that with that. And one reason I decided not to was because just the whole like feeling that players get when you make a choice earlier on and you don't really understand how the effects happen. And one of my previous games, Chivalry is Not Dead, it was very bushy. It had a lot of branching paths and alternate endings. It had a lot of alternate endings. And 
And what I found was that most players just didn't know what it was they did to get to get those endings and to get specific kinds of reactions from the characters. And the people who did get it really liked it, but a, a whole lot of people didn't but wanted to. And so what I did with Life Flashes By was kind of go completely the other direction and have, okay, everything, all the choices here are very blatant and you know exactly what they will lead to in that sense. And so it's just, I guess, experimenting between two extremes. And I think Life Flashes By is a bit of a more accessible game than Chivalry is Not Dead. And it's also a lot more polished at any rate, but... Who knows, in future projects, I might experiment with more granularity as the story requires it. So, no ten-hour sprawling epic with dozens of scenes and multiple alternate realities. Well, you know what? If I get a lot, a lot of money for it, and a huge team, then then sure, yeah, by all means, I'll work on a game for like five or ten years or so and make it a sprawling <laughs> epic. <laughs> I really like that the game only went off on the alternate realities and possibilities were endless, especially since Trevin repeats that ad nauseum. Did you consider putting in multiple alternate realities for each decision, or was one enough? Was it a resource constraint? Did you never consider it? I did consider it at first, but like you said, it was basically a resource constraint, and also of just a matter of, like... How much do I want to say without getting too repetitive? And just generally, as a writer, I tend towards a shorter story format because I don't like to have to retread too much old ground. And once I've said my piece, I'd like it to kind of just kind of stand alone and just be released out there onto the next thing. So there was a lot of that involved in my decision making as well. I guess the only thing left to ask is the current state of the game and to pimp it out. Yeah, um... Uh, That's your cue. My cue. Well, I just got it out of open beta last week, and so basically it's a freeware game. Well, donationware, really. I encourage donations and can buy a collector's edition out of it, but it's not really a big-budget commercial title or anything like that. It's very much a labor of love, and I created it just because I think it has important things to say, and I think that, I guess, it's an important part of, I guess, the lexicon of games in general, and so I'd like for it to get a lot more exposure. What I'm basically doing is trying to crowdsource the game's marketing and PR. So if you want to play more thought-provoking games like this, then support me. Just play the game, tell everyone about it, write about it, interview me like Eric's doing, and and help me get the word out about it. You made it donationware, so basically you can get the whole game, nothing held out, no downloadable unlock things, it's free. And then No DRM. And you're relying purely on the kindness of strangers. Yes. What are you offering in the premium edition? I'm offering a an interactive director's commentary. You've got an avatar of me walking around, commenting on scenes of the game in the same kind of interactive dialogue style that you see in the game. So it is basically like a commentary the game sort of thing. So you get this additional game as a bonus. And you'll also get a lovely printed DVD and some lovely packaging. So you have like a physical copy of something to hold in your hands. Uh, you will get... 
a never-before-seen original manuscript of Charlotte's first novel that was dredged up by a local writer friend of mine. (laughs) (laughs) And you will also get some bonus MP3s of the soundtrack on the disc as well. Including... Including doom and gloom and horrible torment, doom and gloom and horrible torment. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to get tired. tired. It's a great song. <laughs> what it's about. <laughs> I don't know. It's very cheerful, I think. Actually, surprisingly so. I, I know it's sarcasm, but it surprisingly is. Yeah. <laughs> It isn't a minor key, but I enjoy making minor songs sound cheerful and major songs sound depressing. If you're at all interested in music. I feel like I could do a whole interview on the soundtrack because what that is, the most memorable one in there, there's just a lot of subtlety to the soundscape of it. It doesn't intrude on the voices, which I'm thankful for. I wish more games did that. I could point angrily at a few, but I won't. (laughs) You can actually hear the people, and it's a lot of subtlety. A lot of guitar work, a lot of piano, and a lot of I don't even recognize any of the instruments at all. I play a few horns on it, cornet and euphonium. Got a didgeridoo in there. Got a kazoo on one song. Basically what I do... Wait, didgeridoo is an instrument? Yes, it is. (laughs) Good Lord. Like a wow, 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 wow kind of thing. It's I recognize. Yeah. So basically, I just grabbed all the instruments in my house and, and included them all on the soundtrack. It was quite fun. I was very much inspired by Terry Scott Taylor, who did the soundtrack to The Neverhood, if you remember that game. And it's just got a very, like, fun, whimsical quality to, like, very jazz Dixieland uh, influenced sound to it. So I guess I would say if there was a game soundtrack influence that influenced me the most, then that would be it. <laughs> Actually, now that you mention it, is this where Aaron came from? Yeah, kind of. I'm a musician myself, albeit part-time, So, but I do play in a band, and I come into contact with a lot of musician types. And yes, I have dated at least one musician myself, and so there is a little bit of personal experience in there. I'm out of questions. I'm out. That's all I got. Thank you very much for your time, and have a good day. Uh, Likewise. Thank you very much.